Uh, how many of you have been fly fishing before? Has anyone been fly fishing before? Uh, several years ago, uh, as a Christmas gift, uh, my father took me and my three brothers fly fishing up north uh, in Sacramento on the Trinity River uh, in December. And if you want to know what it's like to go fly fishing in December, imagine being freezing cold for eight hours, and that's it. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have never been more cold in my entire life. In fact, I was, I, I was so visibly cold and shaking that the boat I was in started rocking. And my brother Todd, in his great compassion, saw me dying of hypothermia and said, hey, Luke Skywalker, if we find a dead tom-tom on the side of the river, you want me to slice it over with a lightsaber and stick you in it, right? Yet, despite literally shaking for eight straight hours, uh, I did catch a fish. I did catch a fish. And you know why I caught a fish? I caught it because of our guide. See, each of these boats, there's two of them, me and I think Todd, we were in one boat, and my brother Dave and my dad were in another boat. Each boat had a guide to help us go down the Trinity River. And uh, the, both these guides were, were fantastic. Well, about halfway into our journey, uh, while I was freezing to death, um, we got to this one area that had a bunch of lines and lures stuck on the trees right there on the bank of the river. So I, I asked the guy, and I said, you know, tell me, you know, why this is. Why are there all these lines and lures here? And, uh, and his answer surprised me. You know what he said? He said that the fact that there are all these lines and lures here, it did not have to do with the skill of the fishermen. It's not like they were bad and they would just, you know, be careless. He's like, no, no that's not why there are all these lines and lures stuck in the trees on the bank. No, he said the reason why there were lines and lures on the trees is because the fishermen didn't realize that the boat they were in was drifting. You see, they, they were so caught up in the activity of fishing, they didn't realize that the boat they were in was actually drifting and going along with the current. And due to this subtle shift that they were unaware about, they kept getting closer and closer to the bank, and that's why a lot of fishermen got their lines and lures stuck on the trees. And then the guide, then he, he made this really insightful point as we're talking about this. He then said this, he said, he said, look, if, if you don't know that you're drifting, he said, you're eventually going to crash. Have you ever been out fishing on a boat before, any of you, some of you? Have you ever been freezing to death out on a boat before? Or, or here's, here's a better question if you have been fishing out on a boat. Have you ever been surprised 
to realize that you've been drifting for quite a while without even noticing it in the moment? You know, it's, it's one thing to drift in a boat. But do you ever think that you could drift spiritually? Do, do you think you could ever slowly and subtly, you yourself, move away from the Lord? Here, here's perhaps a better question. And you, and you don't have to say it out loud. But what do you think would tempt you to drift away from God? What do you think would cause someone to abandon their faith? You know, sadly, there are probably a lot of ways we could answer that, aren't there? Right? I mean, our own sinful, selfish desires, right? the, the love of the world, the things of the world. There's a lot of ways we could answer that. But, but for a moment, I want you to think about Israel and the Old Testament. Think, think with me for a moment. What was it that often led Israel to drift away from the one true and living God? I would suggest to you that what often led them astray was either a God of their own making or a foreign God. I mean, is this not what we see from the book of Exodus to the end of 2 Kings, right? Either, either a God of their own making or some kind of foreign false God. These were, I would say, the two means by which Israel would often drift away from the Lord. And Faith Community Church, I want to suggest to you that today we face the exact same temptation. Indeed, I'm going to suggest here in the next couple minutes that there is coming on the horizon a pressure to drift away from the Lord that I don't think many of us have really experienced. Uh, several months ago, I was at a Christian high school graduation ceremony. And something took place at that graduation ceremony that I had never seen before, nor had anyone in attendance ever seen before in their entire life. And you know why that was? Is because what we witnessed at that high school graduation was new. Absolutely new. Never been seen or done before. And you know what it was that we witnessed at that high school graduation? We witnessed a man give a graduation speech 
that was written completely by artificial intelligence. The speaker asked ChatGBT to write him a graduation speech. And with a matter of moments, drawing upon all the information that artificial intelligence, that AI platform had collected, it produced, it produced a well-constructed speech. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. If you are, if you, if you aren't aware, good for you. <laughs> but if those of you who know, there is there are growing, significant concerns concerning artificial intelligence. You see, as many have correctly identified, artificial intelligence is quickly becoming the collective wisdom, please hear me, of all humanity for all time. In fact, I would submit to you, you know what we have in artificial intelligence, I would submit to you, we have a God of our own making. And you know what? It is quickly becoming the place people turn to to give them the guidance they need for life, not just, not just to help write graduation speeches. Indeed, there is the growing temptation to consider this unprecedented collection of all human information as the source of true wisdom. Furthermore, consider what was just announced by our government this past June. Does anybody know what that was? For the very first time in our nation's history, our government admitted the evidence of alien life forms that have come to Earth. At one point, people who entertained such notions were considered fringe, right? But that's not the case today. It's becoming wildly accepted or widely accepted. Indeed, it's not only becoming accepted, but celebrated. People are beyond excited about this. And you know why? Because they are hoping that deliverance salvation from the ailments that plague us here on earth might be found in aliens. They're placing their hope in some other being in our universe. In faith, I just want us to consider, I, you might be saying, oh, Aaron, this is just crazy talk. Our pastors finally lost it after 15 years, <laughs> Right? Maybe, okay? <laughs> but if I just, as your pastor, just please hear me. I want you to consider that there's going to come a temptation. Indeed, I think it's already here to drift from the Lord and to look to and to put our hope into a God of our own making or a foreign God. There will come the temptation to do what we see Israel of old did, and that is to place our hope in these false gods rather than the one true and living God. That is to seek from 
artificial intelligence and the hope of alien life form what only our triune God can provide for us. So here's the question I believe we must consider, and not just, not just in light of these two things, but indeed as we journey through this fallen world, and that is, how can we keep, keep ourselves, Faith Community Church, from drifting? That is, what is needed to prevent ourselves from being carried downstream by the temptations of this present evil age? And again, I'm not just talking about AI and other life forms. But the, the, the normal struggles and temptations we face. What do you think you and I need? What do we need to persevere in our faith? Well, you know what we need? It's the same thing a boat needs so it won't drift away, and that's an anchor, which is precisely why we need the book of Hebrews. This morning, I'm pleased to announce that we're about to embark on a new study through the New Testament book of Hebrews. And as we're about to see, I'm going to suggest the, the, the style of this book. This is actually a sermon, right? I, I'm, I'm going to, for however many weeks, I'm going to be preaching someone else's sermon, right? And what you need to understand is that like us today, the original readers of this letter, they were tempted to drift. They were tempted to move away, to drift away from the one true and living God. Now, as we work our way through this book, we're going to see what specifically it is that was drawing them away. But I'm going to suggest to you what they needed to stay firm is the same thing we need. Because you know what counsel the preacher gives them? He calls them to anchor their faith, please hear me, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the preacher says in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Again, anchors prevent ships from doing what? Drifting. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now consider what the preacher is saying here. Listen. Whereas a ship's anchor descends deep into the seabed, a Christian's hope ascends deep into heaven, doesn't it? And it goes deep into heaven all because of, please hear me, the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, <laughs> this is another reason why I'm really excited about this. Like all good sermons, you know what this sermon has, the book of Hebrews, you know what this sermon has? One main point. I love it. In fact, as several commentators have correctly pointed out, the preacher's main point is clearly stated in chapter 8, verse 1. Listen to what he says. So, Everything that he says up until this point, and then everything after it, this is what he says. 
Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Don't you love it? He's like, everything I've just been saying for the first seven chapters, and everything I'm about to say, it's this. This is the point. This is what I want you to anchor your faith in. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And friend, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, faith, you know what is needed to keep us from drifting away? It's the same thing the original readers of this letter needed. And that is a robust understanding and belief in the priestly work of Christ. This is what can anchor our faith so we today don't drift away in the last days. Whether the temptation might come from the glitz and glamour and the fleeting pleasures of this world, or from a God of our own making and artificial intelligence, or in the hope of some extraterrestrial being that can provide healing to the ailments we experience on this earth. What we need is a full understanding and belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, let's dive in. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. That's page 1001 in that paperback Bible. I'm going to see in front of you. Now, I have been Criticized, perhaps, of taking long times to preach through books of the Bible, and that's it's a fair criticism. Uh, when I told my wife we're only going to do the first four verses, she's like, "Are you kidding me?" She's like, "How long are we going to be?" Trust me, we're going to we're going to move in large swaths of the book of Hebrews because that's what the author does. Uh, but he he begins with this very compact tight and very rich introduction in the first four verses. And again, I'm going to suggest that in these first four verses, we learn an important truth about God that is absolutely crucial if we're going to live faithful lives to the Lord. So follow along with in your copy of God's Word as we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The preacher says this, he writes, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Preacher, tell us about this son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this is referring to God's Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint 
of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for our sins. Here again, he's, he's hinting at what's going to be the main point of this message. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And all God's people said, Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. In the musical masterpiece, Steal My Girl by One Direction, Zane proclaims at the beginning of the song, I got it all because she is the one. Her mom calls me love. Her dad calls me son. Some of you know this. Now, is he really his, the son of his girlfriend's dad? Oh, no, of course not. That, that it's simply when he, when he speaks of her dad calling him some, he, he's simply saying that's a term of what? Endearment, a term of endearment, right? Well, in the Bible, we see God call several people his son. However, it's not a term of endearment. No, it's a term loaded with covenantal significance. Let me ask you, who do you think God first calls son in the Bible? Raise your hand if you think it's Adam. And you would be correct. <laughs> right? Adam, and, and we see this later on, Adam is referred to as God's son in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. You know who else or who next God calls his son? Guess. Israel. Israel is referred to as God's son in Exodus 4.22. Then, then what did we learn in our study of 2 Samuel? Remember the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7? In that passage, we learned that all of God's saving promises were going to come to pass through a Davidic son, a Davidic king. A Davidic king who is also identified as God's what? Son. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 14. Now consider what we read here in Hebrews chapter 1. In this text, we learn that God is a speaking God, don't we? That is, he is not silent, but rather he speaks. And notice, he, he has spoken often, hasn't he? As several commentators have pointed out, the text in the original Greek, it's, it's one sentence, and it forms a single multi-clause sentence built around the main clause, God has spoken. 
I mean, look at how the book begins. It begins by testifying that God has spoken to God's people at many times and in many ways by the what? The prophets. How the preacher is not simply stating that God's divine revelation occurred in the past, though that's true. No, what he is getting at is that such revelation of God speaking through the prophets of the past, it belonged to a previous era, one that is passing away and becoming obsolete because as the next verse makes clear, a new day has arisen. Because what does he then say? He says in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? His son. Indeed, the main message of these opening verses is simply this, and that is, God has spoken definitively in his Son. This is the main point the preacher wants us to grasp in these opening four verses. God is not silent. God has not kept himself hidden from us. No, God has spoken. He's revealed himself. And he's spoken definitively in his son. And this statement is more significant than you might think. The implications and the applications of this are legion, especially when we consider how we need and must persevere in the faith. Because this is what I want you to see. God has spoken definitively in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this son is not like disobedient Adam or disobedient Israel or any of the disobedient Davidic kings. No, he is the perfect, obedient son of God. Indeed, he is the eternal son of God whom God has made heir of all things. Now, when the preacher says that God has spoken in these last days, this is not to downplay the authority of the Old Testament prophets and their revelation. Rather, the point is that the previous revelation of God speaking in various ways through the prophets, it was incomplete. And please hear me, and by its very nature, was intended by God to point beyond itself to God's full self-disclosure in his son. As New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner has written, he says, the revelation in the former era was diverse and partial, but the revelation in the son is unitary and definitive. The final revelation has come in the last days, for God has spoken his last and best word. Do you believe that? So, what do we learn about God's last and best word, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the preacher tells us. And based on the language of this text, I want to suggest that the preacher wants us to see that Jesus fulfills three important roles. Three roles that he will then elaborate, the preacher, on in the rest of the book. And the first is this. I want you to notice that Jesus is God's final prophet. I'm going to tease this out in the first couple of verses. Notice what he says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We'll circle back to that in a second. And then notice what this, this son, this mouthpiece that speaks, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God's final prophet. On, on Monday, I attended a zoning meeting at First Christian Church there off Wolfpin Branch Road and Highway 42. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but a storage company from out of state, they want to build some storage units between Wolfpin Branch Road and 265. There's that, that open area. It's just a bunch of trees and stuff there. Well, this out-of-state company, they want to put some, some self-storage units there. But in order for this to happen, there has to be buy-in from the residents of Prospect and this area in order to change the current zoning of the land. Well, I, I wanted to go in order to learn what was going to happen to that land and, to be quite honest, to see if there could be any possibility for a church to buy it. I also wanted to get a feel for what the residents of the area think about that parcel of land being developed. And I'm glad I went. The church was absolutely packed. It was standing room only. And not only was the meeting very informative, but if I'm being really honest with you, it was wildly entertaining, and let me tell you why. <laughs> you see, the owners of the company sent a lawyer to represent them. He was their spokesperson. He was sent to communicate their message. And I don't know how else to say this other than Everybody in that room hated that guy and his message. <laughs> People were infuriated that they would dare build a storage facility on that property, and they were not afraid to share their feelings. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I had never been in a more hostile environment before. In fact, at one point, <laughs> when, when, when one point the lawyer revealed that he also represented the owners of a company that were building some apartments down the way, further down Wolpen Branch Road, uh, uh, apartments that, due to construction, had closed down Wolfpin Branch Road for like several weeks, the entire place started booing at him. <laughs> They're like, boo, boo. And then they, they were yelling at him. They were swearing at him all in a church building. <laughs> they rejected the message and the messenger. Notice what we learn about Jesus. He's the one in whom God has definitively spoken. However, as God's messenger, notice he's not like the lawyer at that meeting. Indeed, he's also very different from the prophets of the Old Testament. For You see, notice as God's final prophet, Jesus not only speaks God's message, but he himself is God in flesh. 
This is what the preacher is getting at when he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, th that word is important. Jesus is not merely the reflection of God's glory. No, he's the radiance of God's glory. There's a, there's a vast difference between the two, and the difference is as vast as the functions of our solar system, sun and moon. What does the moon do? The, it reflects light. Whereas the sun radiates light because it is its source. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He is God's glory. Indeed, consider what we read in the following phrase. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this is where the divine son is different from a human son. Right? No, no human son is the exact representation of his father. I mean, there might be a close relation, but not an exact representation. Look, I have three sons. They may look somewhat similar and like me, but my sons, listen, they are not the exact representation of their father. But Jesus is. The word translated exact imprint refers to the image on a coin that perfectly corresponds to the image on a die. Jesus, therefore, is completely the same in his being as the Father. Through the images of radiance and exact imprint, the preacher here of Hebrews, he captures Jesus' claim when Jesus claimed, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you know what this means? It means a lot of things. But among others, it means that Jesus is the source of true wisdom. His words are true, for he himself is God in flesh. And while many might be tempted, and perhaps already are, are bowing down to the wisdom of artificial intelligence and all the collection of human wisdom passed down through the ages. Christian, please hear me. We have a greater wisdom, do we not? For we have the authoritative words of God. The question is, do his words carry more weight in our lives than our own words? Is he the one we run to for counsel? Is his word the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged? Second, Jesus is also God's perfect priest. And as I mentioned to you earlier, this is, this is where the, the author is, is going at. Look again at verse 3, what we read there. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, think with me for a moment about all the mothers you know. It could be a friend, it could be your sister, it could be your wife, it could be your own mother, it could even be you. Think for a moment about all the moms you know in your life and think about all you see them do, especially the moms of little kids. 
What are some of the things you see these moms do, especially, especially this time of year? Let me give you some, some ideas. Right? You see them get their children dressed, pack school lunches, help with their homework, take them to piano lessons and swim lessons, make them meals, give them hugs. Right? But you know what you never see a mom do? Sit down. <laughs> Am I right? Amen, mothers? And you know why? It's because a mom's work, it's never done. They're constantly tending to the needs of their kids and families. Their work is never done. Well, in the Bible, you know who else never sits down? The priests in the Old Testament. And you know why? Because like moms, their work is never finished. In the Old Testament, God made a way for his people to be forgiven of their sins, and that was through a sacrifice. God gave Israel priests who would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people so that their sins could be forgiven by the blood of the sacrifice. Yet like moms today, the Old Testament priests didn't have the opportunity to sit down. And you know why that is? Because their work was never done. Israel kept sinning. So they had to keep making sacrifices. In fact, if you read the descriptions of both the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you know what's missing in both descriptions? Neither of them have any furniture for the priests to sit down. Now notice what we read about Jesus in verse 3. Tell me, what did he do after he made purifications for our sins? What did he do? He sat down. You know why? Because his work as our great high priest was sufficient. It was enough to cleanse sin-stained people like you and me and to usher us into God's presence. Listen to what the preacher says later on in Hebrews 10. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friend, you know what this means? It means the work required to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness has been done. It's complete, amen? As Jesus said on the cross, what did he cry? It is what? Finished. So he sat down. You know what cannot purify you from your sins? You know what can't reverse the effects of sin? You know what can't restore our relationship with God for all eternity? Aliens. And not just aliens, you can't do it either. You need a perfect priest, and that is God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads to the third role Jesus fulfills, and that is 
He is God's supreme king. Notice how this is just woven masterfully through these first four verses. There in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having come as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, what are we to think about aliens? Well, biblically speaking, I'm going to suggest they are best understood as demonic beings. Yet, whatever you might think they are, consider what we learn about Jesus in the passage I just read. In particular, what does verse 2 state? It states that God created the world through his Son. And as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, all things were created through Christ in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, Colossians 1.16. So you know what that means? It means there is nothing in our solar system. There is nothing in the galaxies. There's nothing in the expanse of the heavens that has not been created by Christ and is therefore under his rightful rule. And that includes aliens. Jesus is superior to any angelic or demonic being. Indeed, when Jesus sat down after making the purifications of sins, where does the text say that Jesus sat down? It wasn't a living room couch. No, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an allusion to Psalm 110. The right hand of the majesty on high is the place of supreme authority. And notice, Christ didn't create, just create all things. Notice what it says there in verse 3. He also sustains all things by the power of his word. Oh, Christian, what a comfort this truth is, is it not? Please hear me. There is not one microbe. There is not one cell there is not one blade of grass, not one car on the road, not one airplane in the sky, not one organ in your body, not one galaxy or solar system that Jesus is not actively sustaining by the power of his word. This is why when we say God is doing all things for his glory and our good, we mean it. <laughs> Indeed, this is why we can trust God and entrust over to God all our concerns. Why? Because he's in control of everything, including that thing in your life that you're sinfully worrying about right now. Let us not give way to worry, 
but rather in light of this truth, let us worship. Faith, Jesus is God's final prophet, for God's final word is spoken by him and in him. He is God's perfect priest by whom final cleansing of sins is accomplished, and Jesus is the ultimate king who reigns at God's right hand. The last days have arrived in Jesus, and the final word has been spoken. So let's anchor our faith in him. Amen? Let's pray.